What a joy to open God's Word with you again today. So Revelation chapter 2, and we want to begin this morning with a question. The question is, is it right or wrong to compromise? And the answer to that question depends on the context. Let me give you an example. If you're going to have a great marriage and you're going to have healthy relationships, you need to know how to compromise in life because there are going to be times the temperature in a room is not going to be what you want. Not making any statements, I'm just saying this. That's just a part of compromise there a little bit. Uh, there are going to be times you're going to go on a family vacation and it wasn't the destination that you would have selected. And then there are going to be times you're going to eat at a restaurant that you wouldn't have chosen that place, but because you understand the value of compromise, you're willing to go there and eat even though you wouldn't have selected that place. Problem comes in relationships, marriage, other relationships, when we don't understand how to compromise and we say it's my way or no way, then we find ourselves in trouble at times. I was in a store the other day and there was a little boy in the store and he was having a tantrum type, and he was melting down, it was bad. And, uh, and, and I thought that little boy just hasn't learned the value of compromise at this point because he wants everything his way just exactly as he wants it. Do, do adults, do we still have tantrums as well? Absolutely we do. But somewhere you have to learn the value of compromise to say it's not always, it's not my way, no way. I'm going to be willing to give and take marriages, families, relationships, extremely healthy when you understand the value of give and take with compromise. The other side, here's where it gets really dangerous. It's when we get to a place in life and we compromise character. When we compromise confidentiality, and I'll talk about that in a moment. When we compromise convictions that are based upon the word of God. I've seen politicians, I've seen pastors, I've seen parents, I've seen people in general who wrecked their lives because they compromised their character. I've seen relationships absolutely divided and ripped apart because someone compromised confidentiality. Let me make a, a side note here. Anytime you're in a conversation and the conversation is confidential but the word abuse comes up, then confidentiality has to end because we have to report any kind of abuse because that's the right thing to do. We're mandatory reporters in the midst of that and we always want to do the right thing to protect those who are victims. And so when you look at that, you understand confidentiality and then you look at it convictions. I know people today who do not have peace in life who are wondering, trying to make sense out of life because they compromise their convictions, biblical principles, and they're reaping the consequences of that. Now, when you look at God's word, here's what you see. Samson compromised and it cost him his life. David compromised and it cost him intimacy with God. Peter compromised and it left him an emotional wreck because you remember after Peter denied the Lord, the Lord looked at him and Peter went outside and wept bitterly before the Lord. So compromise, is it right, wrong? It depends on the context. But what we're talking about today with the church, it was wrong for the church in Pergamum to compromise. They were a compromising church. So a little rehearsal here. The church in Ephesus, they abandoned their first love. The church in Smyrna suffered for their relationship with Jesus. And the church in Pergamum, they compromised their relationship with Christ and biblical teachings. Now, what do we know about Pergamum? 
I want to give you some story here to set the context in place. What do we know about this place? What kind of sights would we see? If somebody asks you about living in Clarksville, Tennessee, what are the top sights to see in Clarksville? What would you say? What would you say? This is what you must see if you come and visit our city. There'd be a lot of answers to that. But if you were going to the place called Pergamum, it was, a, it was not a coastal city. It's about 15 miles inland. But what would you see in this city? I want to give you some words here to write down. Number one, academic books. It was interesting in this city, uh, not, not a huge city like some of the other ones, but, but they had about 200,000 volumes in the library in Pergamum. Now, in our day, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that was extremely impressive back in that day because you have to realize this was before the printing press. So over 200,000 volumes of collection of books would have been handwritten. That was extremely impressive back in that day. So academic books would have been known in this city. Second thing would have been emperor worship. We talked a little bit about that last week, but everybody was expected to say what? Not Jesus is Lord, but Caesar is Lord. And so if you did not say Caesar is Lord, then prison or death in all probability was waiting for you. Emperor worship. Number three, physical healing. In the city of Pergamum, there was a a temple there and it was to the God of healing. And here's what they thought. When you were not feeling well and you had physical ailments, you would go into the temple, you would lie down on the floor and then snakes would crawl over you. And so they believed that if a snake touched your body, then that was a manifestation of healing. So when you look at today the medical symbol of a pole and twisted snakes, it can be traced back to the city of Pergamum. Now, just an aside, let me be clear here. I'd think I'd just die if that was my case. And can I get a witness on that? Anybody with me? I'm not going in, lying down, letting snakes crawl over me. Lord Jesus, just take me on home right now. Because I'm either going to die if you'll take me home or I'm going to die when that snake touches me, one or the other. It's going to be one of those two things. But I, but I don't understand that. But that's what they practice in the city of Pergamum, physical healing. And then number four, local church. There was a local church in this city. And can you think about this church in this city? We're going to understand this is where Satan's throne is at. The Bible says this is where Satan dwells at. Can you imagine, according to John chapter 4, Jesus said, open your eyes and look at the fields that are white unto harvest. Can you imagine the spiritual harvest that was in the place where Satan's throne was, where Satan dwells? The challenge for the church at Pergamum was this. They compromised And they were weak because of that, because they compromised what they believed and how they behaved. And any time you compromise what you believe and you compromise how you behave, the church is going to be weak and you will face the consequences of that. The goal of the local church, living in this world that we live in, our goal is to not be like the world. We should be different than the world. We should be peculiar. We should be kind of strange people in the eyes of the world because we say what? Jesus is Lord and we seek to be faithful to God's word and to follow his ways. And so in this amazing city where this church was, you've got all these academic books. You've got this emperor worship happening where they're saying Caesar is Lord. You've got all these aspects of healing that are taking place, but you have this body of believers, this local church seeking to be faithful to Christ. One of their members who even gave his life for the cause of Christ. That's the context that we see. Now, Revelation 2, I encourage you to write these down because these points come literally straight from God's word. As we look at biblical principles, number one, practice faithfulness in tough places. 
If you and I are going to be faithful to Christ and we're going to follow his leadership, we need to practice faithfulness in tough places. I remember the night that my father, it was a Friday afternoon, May 1st, my father was involved in a boating accident. And uh, so we get to the hospital, Angie and I get there quickly, and then the helicopter is going to transport him from Glasgow, Kentucky to Louisville, Kentucky in, in critical condition, going to take him to the trauma hospital at the University of Louisville. And so we get in the car and we drive to Louisville and we get there. My father passes away. Then my brother and his wife finally get there. They were living out of state, so they get there. And so it's in the early morning hours, now Saturday morning at that point. We're getting ready to leave the hospital, University Hospital Trauma Center. And the security people come to us and say, where did you all park at? And we told them where we were at. And they said, we're going to walk you to your car. And when you get in a car, we want you to lock your doors as you leave because this is a very unsafe place to be at this time of night in the morning. But we recognize that, that they, they gave us a tough place, but we were there. When you look at the believers in Pergamum, they were following Christ. They were seeking to live the Christian life. They were seeking to make a difference for Jesus in a very tough place, in the very place where, again, Satan's throne was, where Satan dwells. Can you imagine living in that environment, being in that context? It was a tough place, but Jesus was saying to them, be faithful in tough places. Now the question for us, how, how, do we, how are we faithful in tough places? How can we do that? If God gives us a tough assignment or he sends us to a tough place, how do we be faithful in that? Let me give you these insights, very practical. Number one, rely on God's word. As you look at the Bible here, you're going to see again, he says here, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. His word can cut, but his, his word can also cure as well. It's very sharp. It's not dull. I remember visiting a lady one day. And I was in her house doing pastoral care and got ready to leave. And when I opened the door, getting ready to leave, there was a snake looking inside the door just about. And I didn't, I didn't like the snake. And so she scared her. And, and she said, you need to kill the snake. And I said, ma'am, I don't think the Lord wants me to kill the snake. And she says, I believe the Lord wants you to kill that snake. And I said, I don't have anything to kill the snake with. And she said, well, I've got a hoe. I'm going to go get it. And she comes back with it. And you know the story. That thing is dull as ever. I'm out there trying to kill this snake for the glory of God to protect his saint in the Lord here. And, and I just couldn't hardly kill it because the, the hole was so dull, I couldn't hardly do it. I don't like doing that kind of stuff. If Angie would have helped out if she'd have been there that particular day. But when you look at this, Jesus says he has a sharp two-edged sword. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's sharp. It's going to cut. It's going to cure as well. So when you look at this again, you rely on the word of God. Because when it comes to the Bible, here's what we know. This is the word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it penetrates. It is also God-breathed. It will not return void. It will accomplish everything that God desires for it to do. So we can rely on God's word. Now, when you look at this, how do we do that? Well, we obey the word of God. Now, I want to give you these words here. As you think about what does it mean to obey, I want to give you these kind of an acrostic way. Look at the first one that's open. If you're going to rely on God's word, you need to open the Bible. I encourage you every single day of your life, open God's word. Let him speak into your life. Believe the word of God. Hear what he's saying to you. Open the word of God. You don't have to read books at a time. Read chapters at a time. Let the word of God penetrate your life and your walk with him. But open the word of God. Be consistent in the scripture. Number two is the word believe. You believe this is the word of God. 
This is not just a piece of literature. This is God's word. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is true. It is divinely inspired. Believe God's word. When I was in college, I was in a, in a class and the professor kept saying again and again when it came to the Bible, this is a good piece of literature. And I, I would say again, how do you respond to that? And I'd listen to and I'd ultimately say, I disagree with that in a sense. It's not just a good piece of literature. The Bible is the word of God. And so stand faithful to God's word. But when you look at the Bible, you open the word of God, you believe the word of God. And number three, you expect, you expect God to speak into your life. When you open the word of God as living and active, God has a word for you. Listen to the voice of God as he speaks to the Bible. His primary way of speaking to you and me is through the Bible. He'll use prayer, the Holy Spirit, circumstances, other people. But listen to what he says to you through the Bible because this is God-breathed. You're looking into the face of God when you read the Bible. Expect him to say something to you. And then number four is the word yield. You just obey him. You yield your life to him. God, you said in the book of James, don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so when God speaks a word into your life, you obey what God is saying in the Bible. God, this is a principle. This is what you want me to do. And I'm going to yield my life and the power of the Holy Spirit to do what you're asking me to do. But if you're going to serve and practice faithfulness in tough places, you have to rely on God's word. His sharp two-edged sword. Number two, understand how God works. Now, as you, you look at this text, he says again, talking about the sword, then he says, I know where you dwell. God knew where they were at. He knew they were in a tough place. And then he went on to say, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. Talking about Antipas, where Satan dwells. They are in a tough place, and that's how God works at times. God oftentimes will, will send us to tough places. Now, here's the challenge for us. There are times we limit God, we box him in, because we say this, God, I really want to serve you. I want to devote my life to you. I want my life to count for eternity. So God, use me to make a difference for your glory and for your name. And then we say this, but God, I need to be in a place that's safe. And God, I need to be in a place that's close to my family. Sometimes God may do that. He may lead you to a place that's safe. He may lead you to a place that's close to your family. But sometimes God may lead you to a place that is unsafe. Sometimes he may lead you to a place that is difficult, that's tough. That's how God works. And for these believers in Pergamum, he put them in a place where Satan's throne was at, where Satan dwells. They were seeking to be faithful in a tough place. Here's what I can tell you from experience. There are times God has sent his servants to places that are difficult and to places that are tough and to assignments that are so difficult to carry out. But that's how God works. He gets the glory from that to say, I'm sending you to a tough place and to a difficult environment. Why? Because I want to use you in that place. There are times that God will allow his churches to exist in a place that is spiritually dark, spiritually tough. But I want you to be salt and light in a place that needs the gospel. I want you to be faithful even in a tough place. You follow God where he's at work at. 
And then there are times there are missionaries which are so convicting to me, inspiring to me as well. They surrender their lives to the call of God to say, God, you're calling us overseas to go serve you. We're going to leave behind all the possessions that we have. And God, we want to move to the nations around the world to serve you. And many of them are serving in environments. They have to change their names. They have to disguise what they're doing because they cannot be known because the risks are that high. That's how God works. At times, he'll put you in a safe place around family. Other times, he will send you to a place that needs the gospel, that is unsafe, that is difficult, but follow the leadership of God. That's how he works. And then number three, live for God's approval. As you understand how God works, you live for his approval because he goes there. He talks about his word. He talks about, I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's a tough place, but I'm working there. I want you to know that. And then he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He talks about Antipas and said, he was a faithful witness to me. Here's the interesting part. Relying on God's word, here's where God's at work at in a very difficult place. But Antipas lived his life not for the applause of the world. He lived his life for the approval of God. Let me ask you, as you evaluate your walk with Christ, are you living your life for his approval or are you living your life for the applause of people? I challenge you. As kids, students, adults of all ages, when you live the Christian life, make sure you live the Christian life for the approval of God and not the applause of this world. God, I'm here to please you. Now, let me ask you this. He's speaking very directly about my servant Antipas. So he calls him out by name. What would the Lord say about your life and what would he say about my life? I wonder how he would describe us in life. I wonder how many he would say, he or she, living casual in the Christian life, not devoted, not surrendered, casual. He or she rarely opens the Bible. Only in a time of desperation do I ever see the Bible open. When it comes to prayer, he or she will pray, but only when his or her back is against the wall, that's the only time they call out to me. He or she not really committed to my church to be there if nothing else comes up nothing else interferes busy schedule always got distractions that that's his or her life serving me don't really serve me never have time never surrenders never is available to be used to me that's his or her life here she's a ceo type christian what do you mean christmas easter other special occasions only time the person comes Oh, God, don't ever say those things about us. I pray for those in the room, those who are watching in my own life. I pray he would say to us and to say to me, you are a faithful witness to me. You have surrendered your life to me. You worship me. You walk with me. You witness for me. You work for me. You serve me everything you've got. Be totally surrendered. Just like Antipas, live for the approval of God, not the applause of this world. And so if God puts you in a tough place, and he very well may do that in life. If he puts you in a tough place, you need to make sure that you are relying on the word of God. You need to make sure that you are faithfully doing what he's asked you to do and you need to live for the approval of God. That's what these believers are doing and he compliments them on those things about what they were doing and how they were living in a very, very difficult place. I'll give you number two. Learn to detect false teachers. 
if you're going to serve in a tough place and you're going to protect the church and not compromise, then you're going to have to learn to detect false teachers. You have to realize false teachers were present in biblical days, but they're present in our day as well. And many times they will slip into the church and false teachers sometimes use the right words, but here's what they do. They bring division and deception to God's people. Extremely dangerous. It is dangerous when a false teacher gets the microphone in a church. Very difficult. So how do you learn to detect false teachers? I remember being in the Miami airport one day and saw these dogs. They were bomb-sniffing dogs. These dogs have been very well trained to sniff out bombs. I remember being in another airport, seeing another dog. These dogs are trained to sniff out illegal drugs, very professional in what they were doing. I was in New York one time in an airport and saw these dogs again. They were trained to sniff out fruit. And so they would come up to this, had this person leading this dog, and that dog would come up, sniff your bags. And if the dog sat down, the person who was leading the dog would say, do you have any fruit in your bag? And the person would say, no, I don't have any fruit in my bag. And the dog just sitting there. And the person says, you may have some fruit in your bag. I don't have any fruit in my bag. And then the person will say, I need to check your bag. Guess what was in the bag? Fruit. That dog had been trained to do that. And so he'd give the dog a treat and the dog would go to somebody else's bag and sit down. I told Angie, person's got fruit in that bag. They're going to deny it, but that person's got fruit in that bag. Sure as anything, they had spent about probably an extra hour in customs because they brought some kind of fruit back in. But those dogs have been trained to sniff out bombs and drugs and fruit. You and I need awareness, spiritual awareness. How do we detect false teachers? How do we spot them? How do we sniff them out so that they don't come in and connect groups or worship gatherings and cause division or chaos or disruption to what God wants to do here? You need to learn to detect false teachers because here's what was happening in this church. He goes on to talk about them and then he says, but I have a few things against you. So the conversation is changing. He says... I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You remember the church in Ephesus, they rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but the church at Pergamum, they have embraced them. And so he's given them this idea, false teachers are in your midst. And what he's saying to this church is, you have compromised standing for the truth. You have compromised the false teachers and the false teachings. And what were they compromised? I mean, you want to write these two things down somewhere on the side. One of them was idolatry and the second one was immorality. Idolatry, they were worshiping things, someone other than Jesus and immorality, they were practicing sexual immorality even among those who are part of the church. And he's saying you have compromised the truth because you allowed false teachers to stand before you and to teach and to deceive you. It's where Satan dwells, it's where his throne is at, and the church is affected by that. So what does it look like today when we compromise? Let me write these, write these down. Number one, inauthentic worship. There are times churches compromise today over inauthentic worship. What do I mean by that? We worship something or someone that we should never worship. And you know this. Worship, we should worship the true and living God and him only. 
We appreciate a lot of things. We're encouraged by a lot of things. But we should never worship those things. They worship snakes. They worship Caesar. They worship so many things. They live immoral lifestyles. And he's saying again, you have, you're worshiping someone, something other than the true and living God. You have compromised when it comes to worship. And church, again, I appreciate personalities. I appreciate possessions. I appreciate programs. I appreciate all those things. But we should never worship any of those things. Our worship should be in spirit and truth. And we should worship the true and living God and him alone. Worship him alone. There are times churches compromise when we have inauthentic worship. Number two, inappropriate lifestyles. That was what was happening in this church. Talking about the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's what they said. You can live any way you want to. God doesn't really care. Even those who are believers, you can live any way you want to. God doesn't really care. So you can eat food sacrificed to idols. You can live a sexually immoral lifestyle. God doesn't really care about those. You can live any way you want to. That is inappropriate. Can you just draw a line in the sand and understand this truth? God cares how you and I live in the Christian life. Again, we should live different than the world. We should live different because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us and we want to be faithful to God and his word. We should not compromise even when it comes to our lifestyles. Be faithful to him. And so when you look at the word of God, we believe this is the Bible, but when you look at the word of God, is it a command or optional that we practice forgiveness? Well, that's not optional. It's a command. That's what he says in Ephesians 4.32. As you have been forgiven in Christ, you should forgive others. That's not optional. That is a command. When it comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, should we have an inward focus or an outward focus? That's clear in God's word. The Great Commission says we're to make disciples of all nations. We're to have an outward focus. When it comes to sexual immorality, is that something that we should flee or participate in? And when I say sexual immorality, that's adultery, fornication, pornography, whatever it may be. That is something according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we as believers should not participate in. We should flee by the power of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about, inappropriate lifestyles. Don't compromise what God says in his word. Number three, inadequate response. When you look at the church in Pergamum, they did not respond well when they compromised. So I want you to write these two words down based on that. One is silence. Many times when the church compromises, we are silent to do the right thing. What does that mean? It means that, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to rock the boat. I'm going to stick my theological head in the sand and hopefully this issue will go away. There are times you have to break your silence and stand up for the truth of God's word. If we're going to confront compromise somewhere you you can't always be silent you got to say no this is what the word of god says thus says the lord this is what god says and we need to be faithful to god's word in this matter in this situation second word is rationalize there are times people rationalize to say well we're all human he or she's a really good guy they're really good people uh, it's not really going to matter that much. It, this will pass to, we just rationalize the behavior. We cannot be silent or rationalized when it comes to compromise. Because if you compromise the word of God in your relationship with him, I promise you, you will face consequences. 
Do not do that because you'll reap what you sow. Sow to the spirit, not to the sinful nature. Trust God, be faithful to his word, live surrender to him and refuse to live a life of compromise. Number three, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus has a word for them in this context and here's, we're going we're gonna to look into that and he, he gives them therefore and he's going to speak in their lives. What's he going to say to them? Church compromise. Chuck Swindoll is someone whom I listen to a lot preaching because I appreciate his teaching ministry and preaching ministry and even writing ministry. But he had a friend one time went to a city and he was in the city and, and uh, I'm getting ready to say something that there's a big number, a lot of people in this room, probably those watching don't even know what I'm getting ready to talk about. But he, 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 he was in this hotel room. He was hungry, looking for something to eat. And he looked in the, in the drawer of the of the hotel room and a, and a cabinet there and he got the, a phone book out and it had yellow pages in it. Many of you don't even know what yellow pages are. Uh, you just Google it sometime, you'll be able to see that. But in the yellow page, you had things you could look up and you businesses and so forth. So he was looking for a place to eat and he was looking in the yellow pages to the restaurants and he found this restaurant and the name of it was the Church of God Grill. And so Dr. Swindoll said his friend that got his attention. And so he called the number that was listed there because he wanted to find out exactly where they were, where he was staying at, what kind of food they had. So he called this restaurant and the guy answered and said, hello, this is the Church of God Grill. And so Dr. Swindoll's friend said, I just found it interesting, the name of your grill. How did you get that name anyway? And so he went on to tell him the story. And he said, well, we, we were a local church. And said, so we're carrying out ministry and our church started struggling. He said, our attendance started decreasing. Our giving was not where it needed to be. So we're having a hard time financially making it. And so we decided as a church that we would start selling chicken dinners after church. And people could buy chicken dinners that would help us fund what was needed in the life of the church. And so they started calling it the Church of God Grill. And so they would have services and Bible studies. And then they'd start cooking chicken dinners and people start buying chicken dinners. So the pastor the time now the owner of the restaurant said you know here's the situation though our church was struggling attendance was declining money was really tight we couldn't really pay the bills we started selling chicken dinners and guess what happened people liked our chicken dinners better than they liked our church and he said so we closed the church and now we just have the restaurant full-time in a church building and we just thought we would keep the name the church of god grill a church can compromise pretty easy if you're not careful. Church at Pergamum, he gave him some compliments. Here's what you did well. Antipas, faithful witness. I mean, he gave his life for me. You hold my teachings, those things, but you've allowed false teachers to come in. They're teaching you the practice of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. You're, you're living a life of idolatry and immorality. All this is going on in the church. You have compromised. The main thing is no longer the main thing. You are focused on yourself. You're living lifestyles displeasing unto me. And I have a word for you as a church, Jesus says. Here's what he says. Three things, write these down. Number one, change is needed. He says to them, therefore, repent. That just means change. You're going in this direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You're not keeping the main thing the main thing. You're not living faithful to me. I want you to repent and change directions. Let me ask you, as he asked the church in Pergamum to repent, do you need to repent? Does this church need to repent? Do I need to repent? Anything going on in life that we have compromised, that we're going in the wrong direction, he just says to us, he said to them, change is needed. What about you? What about our church? 
Number two, consequences do exist. Here's what he said to them as a church. He said, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Can I just say, you cannot do battle with God and win. You want to know that. God's victorious. And he said, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth. His word, his word is sharp. His word is living and active. You're not going to deal with God that way and win. And so you have to realize when you compromise, you're not living the way God wants you to. Consequences do exist. Like I said before, you sow to the sinful nature, I promise you, you will reap destruction. You sow to the spirit, I promise you, you will reap eternal life. You can rest assured, as the book of Numbers says, your sins will find you out. Your parents will, but your sins will find you out as well. Consequences do exist in the Christian life. And then number three, Christ is enough. And when I think about Christ is enough, he says to them, if you'll repent, you'll change, you'll, you'll get right with me again. He says, I will come to you soon, war against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Then he says these three things. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone. No one knows except the one who receives it. You say, what do those mean? Here's what that means. He will meet every need you have in life. That's what the manna is. It means that he will pay your sin debt, your penalty in full, the white stone. He says, I'll give you a new name, meaning he will give you a new beginning in life. That's how he works. When you are born again, you are a new creation in Christ. He gives you a new beginning in life. You'll never be the same. Your eternity changes, and you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can live the abundant life of Jesus in life. How a glorious thing that is. And what does that mean is, this world is not enough, but I promise you, Jesus Christ is enough in your life. He'll satisfy every desire, every need you have. He will be favored, not what you want, but what you need, because Christ is enough. That's what he's teaching the church at Pergamon. Now, when you look at that, sometimes when you look at compromise, you see how church does that. It's not easy to do it from within. If you study church history very much, you'll come across a name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther ultimately founded the Protestant Reformation, incredible work of God in his life, getting justification by faith right. But Martin Luther had every desire to stay within the church of his day and to see revitalization, see, see new life come to it. So he wanted to stay in the church. He wanted to bring reform. He wanted to see the church get back to being faithful to God right, not compromising the truth of God's word. He wanted to do that in the context of the church. But as you read church history and Martin Luther King and the Protestant, or Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, here's what you'll discover. The church excommunicated him in 1521. And that's where we get the Protestant Reformation from. Martin Luther was faithful to God's word. What about you? What about me? Are you compromising in your own life right now? Or are you living faithful to him? If somebody told you that you could tell a lie and no one would ever find out, would you do it? I pray we would live such faithful lives to him, dedicated to him, surrendered to him, that we would never, ever want to compromise a relationship with him. Because again, Christ is enough. I want us to bow together as we pray this morning. and As we bow together and pray, I just want to ask you this morning, what spiritual decision do you need to make today? How do you need to surrender your life? What would he say about you today? I want to ask you in the room right now, 
those who are watching, if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, he is the only way to be saved. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. John chapter 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. I plead with you, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you and moving in your life, surrender to him. Come forward this morning. Let us help you from God's word how you can know Christ and experience forgiveness. You need to be baptized as a believer. We encourage you to take that step of obedience today. We'd love to help you make that commitment. You need to join the fellowship of our church. We'd love to see you do that today. You're welcome to come. Uh, you, you need to surrender your life or you've been living a life of compromise, inconsistency, and he is convicting you that you need to be faithful, stand on the truth of God's word. Surrender your life to him today and to say, Lord, the days of compromise are over. I want to be faithful to you. How do you surrender? And here's why you can do that. Here's why I can give this invitation. Here's why I can invite those who are watching around the world to make a commitment where you are as well. And it's because Jesus paid it all. He gave everything for you, everything for me. Will you give everything of your life to him? That's what the invitation is about. You're not merely coming to us. You're coming to him and saying, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my all. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Will you give him everything you have today? Lord Jesus, this entire worship gathering is always about you. It's never about us. And Lord, today, wherever people are in the room or somewhere around the world, Lord Jesus, move in their hearts and lives, I pray. And may surrender happen because we're coming to Jesus who surrendered everything for us. Thank you for paying it all. And thank you for inviting us to surrender all to you. What a wonderful life that is. And so Jesus, move over these next few minutes as we invite people to give their lives, their hearts, everything about their lives to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.